As America goes through a significant realignment, do you embrace it, ignore it, or fight it? Kirby Anderson explains the process now on Probe. This week we're going to talk about the realignment of America, and we are witnessing some dramatic changes in this country. Some are political changes, some are economic changes, and some are geographic changes. If you're building a business, planting a church, or even trying to understand some of these fundamental changes, you need to pay attention to these changes in America. First, we need to understand the times in which we're living. First Chronicles 12, verse 32 says that the sons of Issachar were men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel was to do. Likewise, we need to understand our time with knowledge of what we as Christians should do. Second, we should also plan for the future. Isaiah 32, 8 says that the noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans he stands. You and your family and your church should have plans for the future based upon some of the things we'll be discussing this week on the program. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So we should not only plan for the future, but commit those plans to the Lord and be sensitive to his leading in our lives. Now, one place where we see a dramatic shift in both attitudes and behavior is marriage. America is in the midst of redefining marriage. Some of the redefinitions are taking place in the legislatures and courtrooms, but marriage is also being redefined through cohabitation. Over the last few decades, the U.S. Census Bureau has documented the increasing percentage of people who fit into the category of adults living alone. These are often lumped into a larger category of non-family households. Within this larger category are singles that are living alone as well as a growing number of unmarried cohabiting couples that are living together. The U.S. Census Bureau estimates that in 2000 there were nearly 10 million Americans living with an unmarried opposite-sex partner and another 1.2 million Americans living with the same-sex partner. These numbers are unprecedented. It is estimated that during most of the 1960s and 70s, only half a million Americans were living together. But by 1980, that number was 1.5 million, and now that number is more than 12 million. Cohabiting couples are also changing the nature of marriage. Researchers estimate that half of Americans will cohabit at one time or another prior to marriage, and this arrangement also includes children. The traditional stereotype of two young, childless people living together is not completely accurate. Currently, some 40% of cohabiting relationships involve children. Marriage may not yet be in the endangered species list, but many more couples are choosing to live together rather than get married. And this is just one example of the realignment of America. This is Probe with your host, Kirby Anderson. Go to Probe.org to get your free copy of Kirby's transcript, Realignment of America. Join us next time as we reclaim and proclaim the truth, God's truth, here on Probe. This week we're talking about the realignment of America, and today I would like to focus on the geographic realignment taking place. If you haven't noticed, people move around quite a bit. And I'm not just talking about your neighbors who drove off the other day in a U-Haul truck. I'm talking about the realignment of America. I think we have all heard that the U.S. population is flowing from the snow belt to the sun belt. But Michael Barone in his article in the Wall Street Journal explains that the trends are a bit more complex than that. Let's start with what he calls the coastal megapolises. This would be New York, Los Angeles, Miami, and others. Here you find that Americans are moving out and immigrants are moving in with a low net population growth. Contrast this with what he calls the interior boomtowns. Their population has grown 18% in six years, and that means that the nation's center of gravity is shifting. Dallas is now larger than San Francisco. Houston is larger than Boston. Charlotte is now larger than Milwaukee. 
Another section would be the Old Rust Belt. These would be the six metro areas, Detroit, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Milwaukee, Buffalo, Rochester, which have lost population since 2000. And you also have the static cities. These are 18 metropolitan areas with little immigrant inflow and little domestic inflow or outflow. The political impact of this realignment is significant. Many of the metro areas voted in significant portions for actually John Kerry in 2004, while the interior boomtowns voted for George W. Bush. But there's more at stake than just the presidential election. In less than two years, we'll have another census, and that will determine congressional districts. House seats and electoral votes will shift from New York, New Jersey, and Illinois to Texas, Florida, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. That is why Michael Brone says in another column that it is time to throw out the old electoral maps. The old maps with the red states and the blue states served as well for the last two presidential elections, but there is good evidence that it is now out of date. In 2000 and 2004, the Republicans basically nominated the same man, and Democrats nominated men with similar views and values. All of that changed in 2008. It is clear that some of the states that went Democratic in 2004 may be available to the Republicans. It's also clear that some of the states that went Republican that same year are possibilities for the Democrats. And let's not forget the surge of new voters coming into the electoral process. Social scientists say demography is destiny, and that is a simple way of saying that demographic changes alter our future. And you don't have to be a social scientist to see the impact. We all know that people move around, and that changes the political landscape. This week we're talking about the realignment of America, and today I would like to focus on the political realignment taking place due to differences in fertility. Does fertility affect voting patterns? Well, apparently it does more than we realize. And this has been a topic of discussion for both liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans. Arthur Brooks wrote about the fertility gap in a column in the Wall Street Journal. He says, simply put, liberals have a big baby problem. They're not having enough of them, and their pool of potential new voters is suffering as a result. Brooks noted that if you pick 100 unrelated politically liberal adults at random, you would find that they had between them 147 children. If you pick 100 conservatives, you would find 208 children. That's a fertility gap of 41%. We know that about 80% of people with an identifiable party preference grew up with a vote that is essentially the same as their parents. Brooks says that this fertility gap then translates into lots more little Republicans than little Democrats to vote in future elections. He also points out that over the last 30 years, this gap has not been below 20%, which he explains to a large extent the current ineffectiveness of the liberal youth vote campaigns. Brooks also points out that the fertility gap doesn't budge when we correct for factors like age, income, education, sex, race, or even religion. Even if all these factors are identical between a liberal and a conservative, the liberal will still be 19 percentage points more likely to be childless than a conservative. This fertility gap is real and will no doubt affect politics for many years to come. So what could this mean for future presidential elections? We'll consider the key swing state of Ohio, which is currently split 50-50 between left and right. If current patterns continue, Brooks estimates that Ohio will swing to the right, and by 2012 will be 54% to 46%. By 2020, it will be solidly conservative by a margin of 59% to 41%. Now look at the state of California that tilts in favor of liberals by 55% to 45%. By the year 2020, it will swing conservative by a percentage of 54% to 46%. The reason is due to the fertility gap. 
Of course, most people vote for politicians, personalities, and issues, not parties. But the general trend of the fertility gap cannot be ignored, especially if Democrats continue to appeal to liberals and Republicans to conservatives. Earlier this week, we talked about political and geographical realignment in America, and it turns out that some of that realignment is due to economic factors. A recent survey by the United Van Lines uncovers some interesting patterns of movement in America. An average of 20,000 Americans relocate across state lines each day for a record 8 million Americans each year. The general pattern is for people to move from the Northeast and Midwest to the South and the West. But the details are even more interesting than the general trends. The the survey found that the most reliable indicator of movement was income tax. People tend to move from states with high income tax rates to states with low or no income taxes. Families are leaving Michigan, New York, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Illinois. Now consider the eight states that have no income tax, Florida, Nevada, New Hampshire, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Washington, and Wyoming. Every one of these states gained in net domestic migrants, and each one of them, except Florida, which has sky-high property taxes ranked in the top 12 of destination states. In order to see the phenomenon in action, compare North Dakota to South Dakota. Both states are essentially the same in terms of geography and climate, but they couldn't be more different in terms of migration. North Dakota lost a greater percentage of citizens than any other state except Michigan. South Dakota ranked in the top 12 states in terms of net domestic migration. People are moving out of North Dakota, but they're moving to South Dakota in droves. North Dakota has an income tax, South Dakota does not. For many years now, demographers have noted the flight of upper-income educated families from California. California is the only Pacific Coast state to lose migrant population in 2007. One of the major reasons is the fact that California has the highest state income tax in the nation. So now more than one and a half million Californians have left the state in the last 10 years. So where are many of these people going? Well, they're moving to the neighboring state of Nevada, which has no income tax. High-income Californians can buy a house in Las Vegas for the amount they save in three or four years by not paying California income taxes. An old adage says that high taxes don't redistribute income, they redistribute people. Once again, I think we can see the realignment of America, because as we have seen this week, economics does seem to matter, and people do indeed vote with their feet. It also seems that taxes, especially state income taxes, is one of the most significant reasons why they leave one state for another state. This week we've been talking about the realignment of America, and today I would like to conclude by looking once again at economic statistics, but this time focus on family income. If you turn on a television or open a newspaper, you are certain to hear or read someone say that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. But would it surprise you to know that other government data says just the opposite? The latest data from the U.S. Census Bureau does seem to indicate that the rich are getting richer while the poor are getting poorer. But these numbers do not reflect the economic improvement of individuals and families. Data from the Internal Revenue Service does show this movement. It shows that people in the bottom fifth have nearly doubled their income in the last 10 years. It also shows that the top 1% saw their incomes decline by 26%. So why do these two sets of governmental statistics differ? Well, it turns out that the IRS tracks people over time. After all, people don't stay in the same income brackets throughout their lives. Millions of people move from one bracket to another. The IRS tracks people each year and thus reflects real changes to real people, while the Census Bureau merely creates the illusion of tracking people. The best way to follow people is to actually follow people. And that's what the IRS statistics do, and so they're more accurate. 
Well, what about the claims that family income has stagnated? First, we need to make a distinction between household income and per capita income. Household or family income can remain essentially unchanged for a decade, while per capita income is increasing. The reason is simple: the number of people per household and per family is declining. If annual household income is sixty thousand dollars, the per capita income for a family of six would be ten thousand dollars, but for a family of three, it would be twenty thousand dollars. The difference in the number of people. Also affects economic statistics for different ethnic groups. Hispanics have higher household incomes than African Americans, but blacks have higher individual incomes than Hispanics, and the reason for this is a difference in family size. Second, we should also take a second look at the statistics that say that income has stagnated. If we go back to the IRS numbers, we find that the average taxpayer's real income has increased by 24 percent in the last decade. The point to all this is that economic statistics can be misleading. They may be true, but they lead to misleading conclusions. This week, we have taken some time to point out some of the dramatic shifts in the social, political, economic, and geographic nature of this country. A wise and discerning Christian will pay attention to this realignment and make wise plans for the future. Isaiah 32:8 says, "The noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans he stands."